Welcome to the Melbourne Children's Global Health Podcast. I'm Steve Graham and I'm a co-chair of the Melbourne Children's Global Health Leadership Team. Also a Professor of International Child Health with the University of Melbourne and Group Leader of International Child Health with the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. We would like to introduce Dr. Basrek Sot and Dr. Sassi Lestari. A warm welcome to Melbourne Children's Campus and thanks so much for being willing to talk on your work on tuberculosis, which is a major global health challenge. My pleasure, Steve. It is not widely recognised that the majority of the world's high burden tuberculosis countries are in our region and that much of the progress that was made over the last decade has been reversed by the COVID pandemic. To introduce Dr. Basra Sot is a medical doctor who trained in medicine in Mongolia and did her PhD in the UK. Basra is with the Mongolian Anti-Tuberculosis Coalition, which is an NGO, and also works closely with the Mongolian National TB Program. She has strong research experience leading the Mongolian arm of two international randomised controlled trials that evaluated new regimens to treat multidrug-resistant tuberculosis and led to international policy change. Dr. Trasasi Lestari is a medical doctor with over 15 years experience in tuberculosis research in Indonesia. She is affiliated with the Centre for Tropical Medicine at Universitas Gajamada, Menzies School of Health Research and the Foundation for Papuan Health and Community Development in Mimika, Papua, Central Papua Province in Indonesia. Sassi submitted her PhD at the end of 2022 on work undertaken in Papua. So Sassi, if I could start with you, can you tell me about how or why you chose to focus your research and public health expertise on tuberculosis? So, Steve, I start my my first research on tuberculosis was in 2006, 2006 and it was about public-private mixed study. So, we evaluate the, the role of private practice in TB case finding and treatment. And we saw a lot of gaps in, in this from this study. Like, we saw many private doctors, they don't treat people accordingly. So... Since then, I was interested because we have the medicine, we have effective drugs for TB, but why people don't use it? TB remains one of the priority diseases in Indonesia until now, and we still have problem with public-private mix, with the doctor's involvement, etc. So the drug is there, but it's not used effectively. Yeah. No, thank you. So suggesting that the private sector tends to work in isolation away from the TB program yeah. in the public health services. Mm -hmm. Thank you. What about you, Basra? What Tell us a little bit about your journey with tuberculosis. Okay. Thank you very much, Steve, for having me here. So a series of lucky events, I would say, and I think I'm meant to be here doing TB research. So I graduated from medical university and wanted to specialize in gynecology. You know, happy profession to have new babies, you know, parents happy every day. But I had, I started my family quite early. So I needed to prioritize my family. My daughter was little then. So I chose as an alternative medical research. I started working in the Public Health Institute, the current National Center for Public Health. 
you know, doing a different knowledge attitude practice survey in relation to contraceptive methods, women's choices, men's choices, even, you know, studies on uh, birth and everything. So while I was working there, uh, beginning of 2000, reproductive health programs were quite um, popular, I think. You know, lots of funds were there for reproductive health uh, programs and um, I was part of our evaluation team, country evaluation team, and that time the pro our program was supported by German government. So there was an opportunity for me uh, to apply for, they were supporting people and, you know, for a master's degree in Heidelberg University on health and community management. So I applied for this, it was very competitive, but luckily <laughs> I got there. And as part of a master's degree, you know, I need to go for my uh, field trip. So I started uh, um, communicating with my colleagues' medical community in Mongolia Public Health Institute. And, you know, what topic would be interesting, what will have an you know, impact in the future. Dr. Narumbat, who is a colleague of mine, he brought my attention to TB. That time he was a national TB program manager, and I thought, yeah, I looked at the statistic of TB, and the mortality was very high in my infectious disease, and still the high. Uh, so I said, okay, I go to Philippines, and did my field book because it's part of a master's degree, and uh, very interestingly, as Sasi did, I also did on uh, public-private partnership okay. on TB. Yes. Yeah. So that was uh, my first uh, research journey to TB. And since then, I've never been apart from TB. Yeah. So <laughs> what, what, what are the specific areas of research that you and your team have been leading in Mongolia in more recent times? Okay. So in terms of research, me and my team, we've been working, as you have mentioned, on a long, the first randomized control trial and shortened treatment regimen stream, stream trials, making it shorter to nine months and then make it all oral nine months. For, for, for drug-resistant TB. Yeah, for rifampicin-resistant TB. Yep. So Mongolia was a, one of the sites, and uh, this randomized control trial was also the first trial in Mongolia. And I'm so proud to say that uh, we have successfully completed without loss to follow-up. Happy, I'm so happy and proud of my team, clinical team, pharmacy team, you know, data managers involved, like six teams worked in this project and so proud of them. And then uh, the team from National, TB, National Center for Communicable Diseases. So another reason, while we're doing this, uh, clean, running clinical trial, we see that uh, children and the family members of our trial participants got ill with TB. So this question, what we do with the household contact. So well, during one of your visits, Steve, as a consultant, union consultant on child TB, we've talked about it. I met you then for the first time and brought this problem. And very lucky was to get uh, some funds from uh, John Birch Trust. And we did implementation research on screening and management of child household contacts for MDRTB. And we really showed uh, that engaging community health workers to do not only, you know, uh, screening assessment at home, but educate uh, families really, really helped. But unfortunately, COVID started and we couldn't <clears throat> complete, you know, use the family members, but we completed that implementation, so making the calls. So by doing so, we really showed that we need screen household members earlier. And also the first six months, 
we'll see more household members getting ill with CB. So compared to initial data, is uh, we showed like a twice increase in the detection, which is good. And another thing was that we have stakeholders meeting during your meeting in June back 2019 to ask you know, whether um, stakeholders will be happy to introduce for children levofloxacin-based therapy for MDRTB household contacts. And they all agreed they were stakeholders for Ministry of Files, National Center for Communicable Diseases, Civil Society, District, two provinces were involved, around 60, over 60 people we have invited for this uh, stakeholders meeting. So this was another thing. We did uh, my team national TB stigma assessment in Mongolia last year with the help of, it was a national survey um, using the mixed method, qualitative and quantitative methods to interview patients. 748 people were um, participated in this assessment and we used um, 54 community health workers from Mongolian Anti-TB Coalition by working also Mongolian Anti-TB uh, Association where they have a program of community health workers going and visiting families. Congratulations on the, for example, the STREAM trial because I think the results of that trial have led to international changes in policy globally uh, for the treatment of drug-resistant TB. And also on the national stigma assessment, which is really quite original to be done at such a scale, as far as I know, in any country. So fantastic work, Basra. Sassy, I understand that you've been located in Papua province, as I said. Can you tell us a bit about your work there, including your recent PhD work? I started a TB project as part of my PhD work in Mimika district in central Papua province. Our initiative is to introduce tuberculosis preventive treatment at that time. So contact investigation was introduced a long time ago, but it was not implemented. And TB preventive treatment was not known at that time. So we introduced these two initiatives at the same time. And after one year, uh, we start with a small scale number of health facilities. So we only involved three primary healthcare and two hospitals. And now in Mimica, contact investigation and TB preventive treatment has become a routine practice. And all of health facilities has implemented this uh, strategy. The WHO has been recommending this strategy for several years now. And yeah, and the, the adherence to this strategy is quite good in Mimica. And Compared to other provinces or other area in Papua, the Mimika district, they can show a good examples for other districts in Indonesia. That's great. And I was wondering, I mean, your findings from your work in Papua province, how do you think they're relevant to the current challenges to closing the detection and prevention gap for Indonesia? I, I understand there is quite a, mm -hmm. a wide mm -hmm. um case detection gap in Indonesia and also not a lot of implementation of preventive treatment. And you've you've been trying to tackle both of those issues together. So how do you think you can make your findings relevant or at least inform rollout or upgrade of policy in Indonesia? Yeah. Our study is actually just a small study. We have a very small uh, human research in our team. And the, the study is an implementation research study. It means we have to empower the local resources in this project. And 
one of the lesson learned that by empowering the local people, we can we can actually get a great advantage because we don't need to invite or to recruit new staff to do their works, but we actually train them, we actually uh, motivate them so that they can do their works better or their tasks better. And one of the problems in Indonesia is case finding and TB contact investigation is one of the recommended strategy to improve TB case finding in Indonesia and also in other countries. The thing is you need to do this contact investigation properly to be able to identify a presumptive TB uh, individuals and then following up with good diagnosis uh, methods. And we need a continuous monitoring, continuous evaluation. Uh, and this system actually uh, maybe in other part of the country is not well established. And we need a systematic approach so they can implement this. Actually, it's a simple intervention, but when it doesn't manage properly, then maybe people kind of neglect this intervention or just do the screening only by asking the symptoms and not properly examine the context of people who live in close contact with a TB patient and probably they will lose the potential to identify new TB cases. Yeah, thank you. I mean, clearly you seem to have been very good at building a team in Mimica and, you know, what value do you place on education of the healthcare workers as well as the people in the community? Yeah, I think education is the key to our success in, in Mimica. We train them a lot and train them often. So it's not like one-time training and finish, but it's like continuously training them, remind them about how to do the contact investigation properly, how to do the TB preventive treatment properly, how to measure the dose, etc. So it needs continuous training. It needs continuous reminding. And without support from the district health office or from the national TB province, it's very difficult because it looks simple, but it's not actually. And they need a lot of support to do be, to be able to do that. Basra, you know, from your work in Mongolia, what advice can you take to your national TB program? What have you learned that you can help strengthen TB services in Mongolia? We have like a, a general, not TB services, but it's very vertical, mm. centralized. So yeah. I think it's important to decentralize the services. And one of the ways, and this is becoming more like a pressing issue for Mongolia nowadays, because we miss uh, about 80% of cases, treatment coverage is only 21. So only TB dispensaries, hospitals, it's really not enough. The TB services uh, need to be managed closer where patients live and closer where patients work. This is uh, the key approaches of building decentralized capacity and that really brings the primary healthcare providers where we have family health centers and Zoom health centers where they provide in the provinces primary healthcare. It become very important now, not only in Mongolia, but globally because universal health coverage, this high level meeting, second high level meeting is going to have happening September this year. So we want to see, you know, the parts of the TB services also managed as in the primary health care. So for that, we need, of course, resources. 
training of healthcare workers as well and also education the general population and you know as regards to translation of your work or your research to policy and practice mm-hmm. can you give us some examples I mean clearly you're showing quite a lot of leadership now on TB in your country but can you give us some examples of how things are changing with practice over time, do you think? Mm-hmm. It's changed international policy to start yeah. with, and Mongolia was quite quick enough to take this and update the national TB guidelines in 2018 and then 2021, and the update is going to happen now. And the current update will include communities, the role of communities in the fight against TB, and how they're going to do it. And uh, as Mongolian TB coalition is leading and building the capacity for community-led monitoring, which means the TB champions, the people who recover from TB will be part of, of this community-led monitoring. So I proposed uh, inclusion, particularly in, ter- in the monitoring evaluation section, little parts where, uh, generally speaking, community-led monitoring could contribute to TB. Because in, in, in Mongolian situation, we have, uh, we say it Mongolia community volunteers, but they're not volunteer, but better to say community uh, health workers. Yeah. You know, they've been contributing, but they've never like uh, acknowledged about their work they do. You know, I think it's important to bring all these uh, things include in the policy to start with. And one of the other work uh, I've mentioned earlier that Livo Froxton, that from implementation research that we did from stakeholders meeting, we trialed this out for for the project. There were um, 19 people, 19 children taken Livo Froxton-based treatment, and it showed that it's quite possible. So this is also included in the national guideline and the policy-wise. Excellent. And, And the stigma assessment, do you think? You know, the findings from that, do you think it's going to change, is it going to lead to policy change, do you think, or how might that work? Mm-hmm. So definitely because we have um, from the stigma assessment developed recommendations and during the stakeholders meeting, actually stakeholders recommend us to have you know, very particular recommendation to every state um, ministries those recommendations related to communities. So we have a set of recommendations to Ministry of Health, Ministry of Education, Ministry of the Innovation and Electronic. What we found is the stigma is high in healthcare settings. Beside that, we want to change that by evaluating the program to be programs of all is done in medical establishment, taught in medical establishment, both private and public. And then we wrote a proposal to develop provision of human rights-based care services. So we want to yeah, develop a module yep. so that all um, pre-service training, even okay. continuous training, healthcare workers have a regular training on human rights care. Excellent. Okay, so that's... Um, <clears throat> and, and also social protection for TB patients. Um, is that legislated in the Mongolian government or is that something that you can address? Uh, Mongolian government is doing quite a lot. So, for instance, uh, for TB patients, particularly for uh, drug resistance, they will receive social allowances until they uh, complete the treatment. And also for severe cases, up to 70-90% of uh, 
disability allowance yeah. they receive it but because of high inflation rates and every, everything is becoming so expensive this is of course not enough but there are social protections available within the local government also for key vulnerable populations uh, you know food packages or other you know during the winter uh, f- uh, to make a fire of coal and everything is available but the matter of whether these kind of supports are really reaching the people that's uh, another another matter another matter yeah so see we talk more about these days about decentralization and health system strengthening can you explain to us how that can help benefit care for people with TB or care and prevention for people with TB and also the challenge of maintaining quality as you decentralize. Yeah, so in a high burden area like Mimika where we have more than 2,000 TB cases every year, more than 30 DRTB, uh, new DRTB cases every year, it's a huge burden for the referral hospital in Mimika and there's only one referral hospital uh, and the number of human resources also very limited. So. Uh, the only way to distribute this burden is by decentralization of TB care to primary health care. We initiate this uh, strategy in 2018 and uh, for decentralization of the RTB treatment from district hospital to primary health care. And it was difficult because there is a strong stigma about the RTB treatment and requirements of good facility, things like that. So we we have several strategies so that they are willing to treat the RTB patient in primary healthcare. And it's actually, you cannot only just refer patient from district hospital to primary care, but the primary care, the TB team at the primary care, they also need to be prepared. They also need to be well-informed, well-knowledge on how to treat TB, uh, the RTB patient. And also another thing, another challenge is that people, they tend to trust hospital better than primary care. They think that uh, clinical care is is better at in, in hospital, so they prefer to be treated at hospital. And there's also a challenge for hospital to refer especially sensitive TB cases, drug sensitive TB cases, because they don't need care at hospital. They can be easily treated in primary care. But how to convince patients that they will receive the same quality of care in primary health care, that's, that's still the challenge. But we, we keep trying and we see there's a, there's a decreasing in number of TB cases treated at the district hospital because they already referred to primary care and and clinical outcome is better in the primary care because they have human resource, they have TB staff who can following up the patient, they can visit the patient to their uh, in their houses. So decentralization is really helpful, especially for the for the district hospital or for the center for TB care in the district. It will really help ease the burden. You have now newer diagnostics Mm -hmm. that perhaps can be employed at the primary care level. Yeah. Um, Does this uh, empower TB 
healthcare workers to be more confident in, in making a diagnosis. You have um, shorter regimens and, and newer regimens, et cetera. Do these things, are these making a difference, do you think, or um, in terms of people's confidence in caring for people with TB? Yeah, yeah. So we are very fortunate that we have quite many expert MTB Reef machine distribute for health facilities in Mimica. And since then, the number of bacteriological confirmed TB cases is increasing compared to before we have the expert machine. And directly, it's also increased number of the RTB cases in right. in Mimica. Yeah, because it's bacteriological confirmed, it's easier for the doctor to diagnose the yeah. patient yeah. compared to when they only have smear sputum when, because the sensitivity is, 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 yeah, is low. Yeah, yeah and Basra... In Mongolia as well, are you seeing a shift to more decentralised, strengthening services at a more decentralised level? The shift is um, slowly happening and I think this is more pressing issue, as I said earlier, in Mongolia because yeah. Mongolian government recently undergone a health um, reform, health mm-hmm. reform mm-hmm. which uh, Combine the two sources, um, health insurance and social insurance funds together and established national health insurance fund, the national agency for that becoming a single purchase and making. So contracts with every hospital, including public, private and public. So, and they will be paid based on the performance based mechanism. And this really, you know, financially, it's really making that every health establishment in order to get the funding they will be particularly for tb you know in for other diseases they will be want to um do it on on their own so that you need for that reason they will train people they need to increase their capacity and also uh tools and equipment for that yeah. so greater accountability almost uh, yes yeah mm-hmm. and, and i think you've noticed that as well sassy that by, by giving the healthcare worker more ownership over the programmatic issues, it gives them the confidence and, and the reward from their work. Is that yeah, how you see it? that's true. Yes, yes, that's true. So by giving them this authority, I guess, it's a transfer of authority to, yeah. from the district hospital to primary care yeah. and give them the recognition that they are able to treat the RTB patient, which is not easy yeah. cases. But if they are able to treat... Uh, the RTB cases until they are cured, I mean, it's very important for their recognition or something or like, how to say, like the feeling of I'm able to cure the TB, MDRTB cases. So That's important. Maybe the words empowerment and yeah, accountability. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Which is great. Okay, well, I mean, I'm very interested because I think both of you are explaining situations. We always talk about the need for more resources and more investment, mm-hmm. but you're explaining to me as I understand it, how you can still make a, a quite a big difference using the resources that we already have, the knowledge that we already have, the tools that we already have, yeah. et cetera, um, which is a major issue for TB. I want, if I could, to move off TB just a little bit mm-hmm. for a moment. So you're both women leading research and advocacy in your countries in what is clearly a major public health challenge. So are the opportunities improving for female leaders in research or maybe they've already been strong in in public health in Indonesia and Mongolia? Tell us about your commitment in that regard. So first you, Sassy. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm talking as a female researcher here. Yeah. 
and also female clinician. In my world, there are too many women. There are too many female. <laughs> It's a female-dominated environment, including in TB research. Like I work, uh, I also actively participated in the the national TB research uh, network in Indonesia, and the majority of members of this research are. Is that because you think they're more committed to a public health problem like TB or is it because they're smarter than the guys or what do you think? <laughs> I think it's because the culture, it's, it's, it's female dominated, including nurse. It's very difficult to find male nurse now okay. because the male students, they're not interested to join the nursing school, for mm. example, as well as the medical school. So... It's really a challenge uh, for me. It's like how we can attract male students to uh, enter a nursing school or medical school. As for TB research, it is true that is a lot of female leaders in TB are more active than the male researchers, yeah. like me, Rina, like yes. you name it, the pediatric TB. Yes. Almost all of them are female. Female. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's it's a challenge because our patient is not only female, it's also male. And maybe they also need a different approach, like from the male perspective, how do we can yeah, involve patient? Uh, yeah, I think uh, we need more male perspective. In there the you go. That's a, lot, that's a great, that's a fresh perspective as yeah. well. What about in Mongolia, Basra? I mean, do you think there's a need to strengthen uh, research opportunities for f female health workers or Do you involve yourself in mentoring and trying to support uh, the next generation of female leaders? In the Mongolian society, women, usually more women, occupy mid-level careers in research and public health. Right. So, again, many women in the research, doing research in public health, but few are in a leader's position because um, society still believes that men make decisions and You know, and they have um, great opportunities than female to be in the C level or in the higher positions. You know, even in research and 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 so all hospital directors, for instance, in Mongolia, are male. You know, in administration usually male dominated, but all mid level workers are all female. Female, and eighty percent of healthcare work in Mongolia is a female. It's very female oriented, although very few goes up to the top position. I think there are many challenges for women in Mongolia. So I see first being women in terms of gender norms and roles. So women are expected to take care of domestic cores and motherhood is another challenge. Mothers have perceived less competent or less likely to be hired and stuff like that. So we need like a gender transformative policies, for example, very family-friendly Policies that will intentionally enable more, you know, an equal share of work, um, not only at work, but childcare between men and women. <laughs> yeah, so that, you know, both fulfill their potentials yeah. at work. In terms of Mongolian government makes, uh, it's a quite, uh, Mongolia is a democratic country making commitments in gender equality. For instance, in the parliament, uh, 10%, like a nine, we have currently nine parliament members out of 76 A woman. A woman, which is, but they put in quota saying, you know, the current government say, 10, I think it's if 10% should be women. But the, 
still f- uh, facing challenges to bring more women okay. on, on the top level. Yeah, but, well, I think proactive interventions uh, or policies are needed to support right. women. For instance, proactive coaching and, you know, mentoring for young female yeah. research and profession. And this is non-existed uh, has in there ever Mongolia. Been a, has there ever been a female national TB program manager in Mongolia? It wasn't common. Uh, I no. know uh, there was uh, many, many years, there was another w- one woman, a doctor who became an STP program. And sometimes, you know, uh, changes in a hospital setting, uh, changing the um, NTP managers. I've been working intensely in TB in the last decade or more, yeah, with the National Center of Communicable Diseases and TB Coalition. And I've seen five, six changes of NTP managers, so frequent changes of NTP manager, including the administration of the National Center for Communicable Diseases. Just right after COVID, like four times the general director have changed. And, and that's another problem for us. How can we implement policy sustainability? Sustainability is another. When you have such constant, yes, frequent constant changes, changes of leadership. Yeah, yeah. So perhaps you'll consider being the next NTP <laughs> manager in Mongolia and stay there for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to tell the truth, uh, I've got quite uh, many times in the office I know. because I work closely with the National TB program and um, I'm happy that they <laughs> they, th- they think that I can lead uh, them. You can do them. I can do them, but... No, that's great. Thank you. That's great. Final question for both of you, Sassy. What would be on your wish list of novel tools and approaches that could be implemented to make a significant and lasting impact towards ending TB in your country? Yeah, yeah, novel tools. I always dream of availability of point of care testing, which can be applied everywhere, at home, in the communities, doesn't have to be in the lab. So something that you could do at the bedside or in the yeah. home that yeah. would provide a respond, an answer yeah. on the same day. Yes, yes. And that's one of the reasons, isn't it, why TB lags behind things like malaria, mm. HIV, because many other diseases already have that. We yeah. don't have that in TB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's strange. <laughs> it, it requires a whole health system strengthening just to get somebody diagnosed. Yeah, true. Yeah, and then true. treatment as well. So yeah. a rapid diagnostic for you yeah. and accurate. Yeah. Excellent. And another thing is the approach. Like I think we need to involve everyone in TB control program, involving the non-sector people, a non-health sector people. Yeah. They're also involved in TB, uh, in, in COVID control. But why we can do the same thing for TB? Like if we can invite everyone in healthcare, for example, to be actively participate in TB screening in community or in the health sectors, I think it would be very helpful to increase TB case finding in our country. That's fantastic. Thank you. Great perspective. Azra, do you have a particular favourite on your wish list? <laughs> A wish list. I have many wish lists. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just to mention uh, very few, you know, it's no brainer that we need the TB vaccine, really, you know. Yeah. Hopefully by 2025, as the international community was saying, not sure if we will, but it would be really, really good to see the TB vaccine will really help to with the fight uh, with, with the TB. And um, I would say that in one of the meetings that in the multi-stakeholder, a hearing on TB where I attended in New York uh, just recently, 
the BioNTech, one of the companies who developed in a very short time COVID vaccine, they are committed in the development of vaccine, which is very promising for all of us. Um, yeah, another thing <laughs> I want to look at, is, this is a wish list, you know, yeah, yeah, but yeah. This, you can... You can dream. <laughs> <laughs> another thing I always look, you know, beyond the treatment, of course, we shorten the treatment regimen, but still the shortened treatment regimen for drug resistance to be six months now, we made the stream clinical trial nine months, but there are other six months, but still it's long for patients. One of our studies uh, where we did Fox group discussions, it's, it's also a multi-center uh, multi study, it includes South African, Mongolia, and Georgia Baptist. And during the focus group discussion, they also said still it's, we ask what's the patient's uh, preference? What's the patient think? Even they were on nine month shorter regimen, six month regimen, they still it's, it's very long. If they ask us, you know, if, if you're having a cost of antibiotic or how do, how do you feel? And I've, I've been talking today, you know, people about the stigma assessment. I had appendicitis and I didn't feel ashamed, you know, of having appendicitis. And also taking one course of uh, uh, antibiotic made me uh, develop oral candidosis, mm. which was another problem. But uh, what about these people? We need the treatment short, but also less, no side effects would be would be really good. But in that case, you know, to see the treatment like a wholesome approach. Sure. Not only drugs and drugs and drugs, you know. Besides that, lots of it's a human life. TB patient is not a statistic, but it's a people. That is why we need to look at the approaches, as you Sassy correctly said, you know, to look at the persons and the providers where they are. And one of the areas I'm very much interested <laughs> gut bacteria. It's mm -hmm. a new coming um, area, uh, lots doing on immunity. They say that the, our gut bacteria controls our brain and everything. Who we are, and some researchers even ask, you know, are we human or are we bacteria? Because more bacteria lives than human cells. So <laughs> that's another interesting area that I want to explore in mental health and also in immunity. So it would be interesting to look at the perspective, how we can increase the efficacy of drug yeah. in complementing by, you know, investigating, using the current biotechnologies and make the patient immunity and support the efficacy of drugs. Yeah. Right. That's the second thing. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, with all of that list, you're going to be doing research for quite a while yet. So that's good to know. I think all of us would like to see short highly effective, safe medicine sure. that can be delivered in a person-centred care mm -hmm. because not every TB person with TB is the same as the other person with TB. They all have their own specific needs. Mm -hmm. And yet to get to that point, we still have to make the detection and the diagnosis and where we still need that very accurate, rapid diagnostic so that hopefully one day we can make the whole journey of TB from developing disease, being diagnosed, being treated, a much shorter, safer, home-based journey would probably start to make much yeah. a much bigger difference. That would be excellent if we have it. Okay, so that's something for us to look forward to. But for now, all I want to say is thanks so much for doing this podcast and for sharing your wisdom here with us in Melbourne. All the best. Thank you so much, Steve, for the opportunity. And Basra, thank you for sharing your story as well. Thanks, Basra. <laughs>
Thank you, and thank you for bringing me to Melbourne. It's my first visit to Australia, and enjoying going around this children's hospital. It's amazing, you know how well established. And of course, with this kind of the environment is very important, you know, with the knowledge and everything. Of course, it will Australia leading, you know, research excellence. Of course, in TB. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take thank care. you, Steve. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Global Child and Adolescent Health Podcast, produced by Melbourne Children's Global Health, an initiative of the Melbourne Children's Campus. Melbourne Children's Campus is a partnership between the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne, the Department of Paediatrics, the University of Melbourne, and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. The Melbourne Children's Campus is located on the lands of the Wurundjeri in Nam, Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to join us next time.